Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome back into the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. We're on the conclusion of the epic tome that we call Frank Lloyd Wright's Life. Joined by me, as always, is my co-host, Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks. And we're just going to get right back into it. The year's 1922. Kitty Wright finally granted Wright a divorce, but it was under one condition. Wright could not marry his mistress, Miriam Noel, an actress, for one year after the divorce. Of course, one year later, he wed Noel. But this was the same year that he lost his beloved mother, Anna Lloyd-Jones, 1923. And after the death of his beloved mama, Wright had hooked up with this Miriam Noel character. She was an actress from Hollywood, and she met as a pen pal of Wright's. She had sent him condolences after the Taliesin tragedy and created a correspondence. And eventually, the two of them got together and they set sail for Tokyo, where Wright opened an office and he began working on his next work, the Tokyo Empire Hotel. Now, his new bride, Miriam Noel, suffered from a crippling morphine addiction. This led to a failure of yet another marriage. While separated, Wright met a Montenegrin dancer at a ballet. Her name was Olga Lazavich Hinzenberg. Noel ended up moving back to LA to continue her acting career. And then Olga, or Ogilvana, as she's come to be known, was the third and final marriage for Wright. Well, the thing with Miriam Noel, though, is that it really feels, I, I mean, Frank Lorenz's autobiography, he says that I only married her because I thought it would help the relationship. And so things were already disintegrating. And then his wife grants him the divorce, but he's got to wait a year. Mm -hmm. And so I think he already suspected that this was going to end badly. And he's like, the one way we can save it is we're going to get married. And that was like the hugest mistake that he did in the 1920s. Yeah. Was marrying her because then he couldn't get out. Yep. You know, it was right after the tragedy at Taliesin, the preceding five or six years, he was with Miriam Noel. He's working on this ambitious project, the Imperial Tokyo Hotel, living abroad. And then finally, everything kind of disintegrates after the marriage. And then he is at a ballet in Chicago, and he runs into this lady. She's a dancer, and Wright starts talking to her, and he sees her as like an intellectual equal. And he's intrigued. Things fell apart with Miriam Noel, and he's looking on to his next Frank didn't wait long. No, in none of his relationships, he either, it happened in succession with marriage or right after a tragedy at Taliesin. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like to have a lot of time on his own. He meets this Montenegrin dancer, this young Ogilvana, and she was a devotee of a guy by the name of George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. He was an Armenian philosopher, mystic, and a spiritual teacher. The two quickly started a relationship, this is right, in Ogilvana, and moved into Taliesin, along with Ogilvana's, her daughter from a previous marriage, Svetlana. During their budding affair, they conceived another daughter together. So this is the seventh kid for Wright. He's not yet divorced. He's living in sin with Ogilvana. <laughs> yes, he is. And they conceive a daughter, add one more to Wright's brood of children. Noel, still legally married, she did not go out quietly. She heard of what was happening at, at Taliesin, this new lady coming in. She's now with a love child. She halts all the divorce proceedings, and she ended up causing Wright much trouble, including two nights in a Hennepin County jail. So Miriam at the time, there's, this is in the Madison newspapers. She's causing trouble mm -hmm. she's you know going to the, like where they're at she's doing like the she's doing like the book tour like the the tell-all about frank lloyd wright in the press and just really besmirching his name and saying you know this is his mo now he's shacking up with this broad from the east and they're having a kid together and living in sin and this was 1926 at the time I'm not sure what she really wanted out of the situation, but I think she felt kind of betrayed. Well, I mean, she also is somebody who 
you know, recovering from a, a heroin addiction. She had insinuated herself into Wright's life through these letters and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the plot of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. So after she found out about this, she goes to the media. She even gets the law involved and swore out a warrant of adultery against Wright at the courthouse in Baraboo. Now, the charge of adultery led Wright to flee Taliesin with Ogavana and the children. They head to Minneapolis. They used fake names. They briefly stayed in the city before renting a cabin on the shores of Lake Minnetonka. Two months passed peacefully at this little cabin, but on October 20th, 1926, county deputies from Hennepin County, they appear at the cabin and they took the entire family into custody. The young child, Ogavana's daughter, Ogavana, and Wright. Wright spent two nights in Hennepin County Jail and was charged with violating the Mann Act. It was a federal statute prohibiting the transport of women across state line for immoral purposes. This was probably something for like sex trafficking or something like that, but they ensnared right into this. Definitely through Miriam Noel's vengeance. And well, part of it's also the Man Act is like prevent elopement. So, you know, somebody goes off, immoral purposes is, well, you're not, you know, you elope, you run away, you're not getting married. If you're having, that's the immoral purpose. You're mm-hmm, going somewhere mm-hmm. to have sex. So the Man Act is very, it's the kind of law that can be used against people selectively if somebody's got a vendetta or somebody wants to get their daughter back or, or all those kind of things. Yeah. So it was a real opportunity for her to seek some final vengeance against Wright for his latest affair. Wright, he could have saved himself a lot of trouble had he kept his tourism dollars within Wisconsin. He could have went <laughs> to Door right. County. He could have went to the Apostle Islands. Could have went to the Bayfield Ghost Walks. Right. A lot of beautiful places he could have gone to. He could have went to Manaqua. But no, he had to go go to Minnesota and spend his dollars there. And, and paid the price for it. serves him right. Wright told the press, legally, I am wrong, but morally, I am right. Just as right as Jesus Christ ever was. So he's even <laughs> taken, taken the, the name of Jesus Christ in vain, a proto John Lennon. Right. So it was yet another scandal for the promiscuous architect. The charges were eventually dropped, and Wright and Noel came to terms on their divorce agreement. Wright went on to wed Ogilvana two years later in 1928. Wright's essentially on his fourth wife, if you consider his long courtship with Mama. He's now 61, and in most men's life, at 61, he starts to slow down. Nobody'd blame Wright if he just folded it up, packed it in, and called it a career, right? But that wasn't Wright's style. There were many projects to attend to, a legacy to build, and a life to be lived. He just wed Ogilvana. She was 31 years his junior. Well, and, and things don't end well for Miriam Noel either. No, no. She died shortly thereafter. Like, like 1930, she dies in Milwaukee. She's buried at Forest Home Cemetery. Wow, I didn't know, didn't uh, know in, that. In Milwaukee. Yeah. And uh, so she, I mean, she's not old at all. And she, her troubles end up, and she dies two years after the divorce. Not an old woman. No. Right. 61 at the time. Ogilvana, she's only 30. Whenever older men get together with younger women, there's only two directions they can go. Either the man, they totally lose it. They make poor life choices. They blow up their career. Or they use the affection of the new younger lover as a muse. The James Cameron effect. The James Cameron effect. That's right. <laughs> I'll let the listeners decide which way it goes for Frank, and you might be surprised. After Ogavana married for the first time, she was only 19. Shortly after marriage, she discovered this mystical character, Georgie Gurdjieff. One account asserts that she hiked barefoot over the mountains of Georgia, abandoning her husband and infant daughter to sit at the feet of the master. She became a devotee of Gurdjieff, Reed Groupie, right? Right. And began her career as a student of the sacred dance. This was Gurdjieff's. This was his, kind of the capstone of his philosophy was a sacred dance. Yeah, the Gurdjieff movements. The dance was designed to provide conditions in which inner attention could be exercised for more intensive purposes. I can only characterize it as like a ballet of Tai Chi, kind of something to either induce a meditative state or get you in a different thought pattern. Gurdjieff sometimes referred to himself as a teacher of dancing and gained initial public notice for his attempts to put on a ballet in Moscow called The Struggle of the Magicians. And you had some more on the Gurdjieff movements. This is in Gurdjieff's own words from one of his early talks in New York in 1924. Sacred dances have always been one of the vital subjects taught in esoteric schools of the East. They have a double aim. They contain and express a certain form of knowledge and at the same time serve as a means to acquire a harmonious state of being. The combination of unnatural movements 
helps to obtain certain qualities of sensation, various degrees of concentration, as well as the directing of thought and senses. This dancing has another meaning we are accustomed to. Ancient dance was a branch of art. In ancient time, art served the purpose of higher knowledge and religion. Knowledge was expressed in works of art, particularly in dances, just as today we give out our wisdom through books. Thus, ancient sacred dance is not only an aesthetic experience, but a book containing a definite piece of knowledge. Yet a book that not everyone who can read, yet it is a book that not everyone can read who would, which not everyone can read who will. Imagine that in studying the laws of movement of the celestial bodies, you have constructed a mechanism for the representation of these laws. Every planet is represented by a ball and is placed at a determined distance from the central ball, the sun. You set this mechanism in motion and all the balls begin to turn and move, reproducing the laws you want to study. Likewise, in the rhythm of certain dances, in strictly determined movements and combinations of dances, certain laws are vividly recalled. Such dances are called sacred. During the period of my wanderings in the East, I often saw dances of this kind executed during the performance of sacred services in some of the ancient temples. He calls this like the fourth way. Mm -hmm. And he's got like the way of the monk, the way of the magi, and the way of the yogi. And so if you think yoga, right, the stretching and stuff like that. So he's getting this idea of dancing from these rituals and also this idea that, you know, in yoga, if it's part of a spiritual instead of just a physical, it's supposed to help with enlightenment and meditation and all these things. And so he moves that to his fourth way, which is supposed to integrate all of the other ones, the way of into a series of movements into into a a a sacred dance. And so you have this Olga from Montenegro Mm -hmm. and she is a dancer. And then she finds a spiritual teacher who's specifically teaching people that you can attain enlightenment and mystical powers through dance. Wow. So she sees that. And I've also, you know, her early story is murky or whatever, but I've also read that her husband was part of the group as well. Maybe that's how they met. And then he became unenamored with uh, Gurdjieff. And that that's when he went to New York and, and, and left. the You know, the, he takes the daughter and runs out and she stays there for several years. But either way, she's estranged from her family because she's off in following this spiritual, this Armenian mystic. And of course, like any mystical teacher or charismatic leader, Gurdjieff split the room. Sympathizers regard him as a spiritual master who brought knowledge into Western culture, a psychology and cosmology that gave needed insights beyond those provided by the established science. Now, detractors or critics, they'd say that he was a charlatan with a large ego. And to use one of my favorite memes, it's the little girl that says, why not both? (laughs) I think both can be true. He did inject some interesting concepts into Western culture, but I think with any leader like that, to even get to that point, you have to be pretty egocentric. Well, and if you think of Madame Blavatsky bringing over this stuff during like the first spiritual movement, mm-hmm. there's Gurdjieff who's now doing this. The second the way second, of kind of. You know, this, the second spiritual movement that's coming in the 1920s. Yeah. And his teachings went on to influence people like Timothy Leary, Alan Watts, Robert Anton Wilson, P.L. Travers of Mary Poppins fame. The writer Catherine Mansfield actually asked for Gurdjieff on her deathbed. And many singers and musicians like the newly popular, again, Kate Bush, Keith Jarrett, George Russell. So he had a lot of influence on both popular culture and thought. That's absolutely right. And well, you talk about Timothy Leary and Timothy Leary's the father of LSD. (laughs) Right. He he was the guy that did all these LSD experiments Mm -hmm. at Harvard in the 1960s. And Gurdjieff is doing these exercises to try to get psychic powers Mm -hmm. and everything. You said he, he had an institute in Paris. Those were all women. And they called themselves the rope. And so in some of his writings, he talks about how they were using drugs there to accelerate their psychic powers. In a lot of his, uh, talking about the fourth way, integrating all these things, he's talked about black magic a lot, white magic a lot, but it wasn't, he's either black magic or white magic, either good or evil. He says, every human to become the fourth way man Mm -hmm. needs a, a combination of both. And sometimes to get there, he had to use drugs and alcohol. And he mentioned that the ladies of the rope were most successful in starting to have some of these psychic experiences, spiritual enlightenment. 
after they got all messed up. Yeah. So that's him in, in Paris doing this as a precursor you know, and that's, to Timothy it, Leary's LSD trips in the 1960s. Yeah, and that's not different than some modern psychonauts that do psychoactive chemicals to kind of a pathway or a shortcut to a state of enlightenment. Oh, yeah. Or, Are you asking tourism as a thing? Yeah, or exactly. In, in California now, the weed is legal. People smoke a big fat joint and then they get into like a sensory deprivation yeah. chamber. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, or the edibles can induce states like that as well. Right. He may have had a profound impact on the works of Frank Lloyd Wright himself. Some claim that Olgavana's eldest daughter, Svetlana, who was presumed to be the progeny of her ex-husband, was actually the illegitimate child of Gurdjieff, which just talking about... It says know, it on his Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it actually says it right within his Wikipedia page. There is some contest of who Svetlana's real father is. Unfortunately, they didn't have Mori Povich back in the day. <laughs> right, they couldn't do the DNA yeah. test or whatever. Some speculated that Olgavana was on a mission when she met Wright at that 1924 ballet. The 27-year-old was sent from France to scout out possible benefactors for her Russian guru or to perhaps mold a new school around the genius of Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, and she was teaching at the time. She was teaching the Gurdjieff movements. Yes, yes. So she still was a Gurdjieff devotee. Her kind of how she got into Frank Lloyd Wright's, that's up to speculation. But as you see going forward, her place within the Wright's legacy. Right, and he was a sucker for a pretty girl. Yeah. Wright was well-established in his career. And to Ogilvana, Wright was another great man. And Taliesin was a rural paradise. It was the perfect New World haven for Gurdjieff, or at least his beliefs. The fellowship would be molded around Wright, the American genius, the way Gurdjieff's Parisian Academy was molded around the Armenian mystic. Wright was just 14 when he first read Victor Hugo's novel, Notre Dame de Paris, better known as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Folded into the story was a beautiful woman, a deformed man, and an essay about a building in the fate of architecture, Notre Dame, the, the chapel, the temple. The cathedral. The cathedral. Wright would later describe it as one of the truly great things ever written on architecture. The would-be architect had been devastated by Hugo's argument that the invention of the printing press would dethrone architecture. That was one thing that Hugo posited within that story, was that the printing press, movable type, the book is now the pinnacle of culture, and architecture is dead beyond recall, killed by the printed book. The boy whose mother had told him he would be the greatest of all architects could now only aspire to become the high priest of a second-rate pursuit. So you see how that story really had an impact and kind of stuck in his craw, where he thought that architecture needed to be restored to the pinnacle pursuit, the highest expression of form, where Hugo said, it's going to be the novel. It's going to be writers literature. Who displaced, writers who displaced architects yep. as the greatest artists. Wright would be the architect of architecture's redemption, a T-square wielding Dante who would dethrone the book and restore architecture to its rightful place in Ogilvana would be his Beatrice or the muse. Yeah. And that's an allusion to Dante Alighieri's divine comedy and his muse in real life was named Beatrice. He kind of saw himself as this, this mythical figure to bring architecture back to its prominence. But I do find it ironic that he had to make a literary allusion <laughs> right. to make that. It's kind of like... Can you really restore it to that when you have to use a literary illusion? And I think there's a rightful place at the top of the peak for well, both architecture and literature. And when there's a famous quote by Frank Zappa that writing about music mm -hmm. is like dancing about architecture. So that, you know, all these things, you know, it, you can't make an illusion in one medium to express something that can only be expressed in a different medium. If you step into a Gothic cathedral, there's things that many tomes of books will never be able to describe the feeling. Absolutely. It was in this time in his marriage to Olgavana when he created his magnum opus of residential design, and that was Falling Water in Bear Run, PA. That's probably his most storied work of residential architecture. He also designed in that time the S.E. Johnson Wax Building, the Guggenheim Museum, and began his work on Taliesin West. Ogilvana was not a disruptive force. After all, it seems she was a stabilizing force that focused the genius of Wright into some of his greatest works. But it wasn't always smooth sailing. In 1932, Wright and Ogilvana put out a call for students to come to Taliesin to study and work with Wright. 
fellowship as it would become to be known, would include schooling on architecture along with spiritual development. During the early years of the fellowship, the apprentices were said to receive no formal instruction, and for their $650 annual tuition, they received the task of renovating Taliesin's outbuilding as a place for them to sleep, as well as planting and harvesting crops. You know, it sounds a lot like the Mr. Miyagi school of architecture. (laughs) He's got these guys out there cleaning up the grounds, farming, and doing the work, but not actually receiving any formal instruction. And then you have Ogilvana, who is teaching this spiritual practice when they came there to study under Wright as the master. They wanted to study architecture, and instead, (laughs) they're farming crops. They have to design their own stuff and just figure it out. And then she's probably making them dance. Yep, and we'll get into that as well. Through the Depression era, the fellowship kept Wright and Ogilvana and the Taliesin compound afloat. Just well, that's it. right, because didn't in like 1927, he lost Taliesin for a little bit to the bank mm-hmm. because he was running out of money. Yep. And then he didn't get it back till a year later. It was kind of a dip in his life, early Ogilvana period. And then he started the fellowship and then he finally had money coming back in from the students of that. And then commissions started rolling back in. And then the students actually got to see the master at work. Well, well think about him in 1926 when we were just talking about it. The idea that, okay, here's Frank Lloyd Wright. He's 60 years old. You mm-hmm. know, he's not a young man. He just um, went through a, a brutal divorce. Right. Was on the, on the precipice of it. And he's getting, like, his, his ex-wife, who mm-hmm. he's trying to avoid or whatever, is, like, calling the cops on him. Yeah. He's losing money. Mm-hmm. He's got a trace. tries to escape. He loses his shining brow. He loses shining his estate. Shining brow is his, the name for Taliesin. Yep. Right, his place. And... Um, that, I mean, think of a lot of people wouldn't come back. You're 60 years old. How do you come back from that? Yeah. Yeah. And he finds this young Montenegrin beauty and puts together some of his, his best work. One of the fellowship was an interesting experiment, and you'll see how that turns out. The criticisms of that fellowship is that they never encouraged this independent growth, right? Never created architects at the level of his rival, Walter Gropius of uh, Harvard, which was like his contemporary and his rival. He was churning out renowned architects. Harvard is a serious place of study. Right. And then you got Frank Lloyd Wright in the backwoods of Wisconsin having these dudes farming and designing stuff and kind of going through the grassroots. And none of them ever really went on to the fame of Frank Lloyd Wright. Right at this point, he was a larger-than-life figure. He was said to be the model for the overreaching architect hero in the Fountainhead the Ayn Rand work, the character was Howard Rourke. He's the protagonist in The Fountainhead. Although Ayn Rand denied that the character was based or modeled under a specific person, you can definitely see the Frank Lloyd Wright character coming in. She was clearly inspired by him, and she even came to Taliesin for a visit. After she visited Wright's commune, she opined, it was like a feudal establishment. The apprentices were like medieval serfs. We sat on a raised platform high above the others, We ate fancy delicacies, and they got fried eggs. I like fried eggs. (laughs) It was a real caste system. The idea for it all was his wife's. She's really saying, okay, what is Frank Lloyd Wright up to these days? She based the character loosely on the works of Frank Lloyd Wright, and this may be where some of this materialist, objectivist stuff comes in with Wright, was because, oh, well, if Ayn Rand adored him, he must have been a materialist, objectivist like her. Because nobody's more atheist or whatever. No, she was like hardcore atheist, objectivist. If you can't measure it, weigh it, it doesn't exist. That's was pretty much Ayn Rand's ethos. Right, and if you can't make your weight in society or whatever, you know, pull your weight, um, then we'll leave you behind. Yeah, Yeah, she was very laissez-faire when it came to capitalism. And some right and some terribly wrong. Right biographers, Friedland and Zellman, assert in the book The Fellowship, without Gurdjieff, there would have been no Taliesin Fellowship, and almost certainly no Falling Water, no Johnson Wack, no Guggenheim. Gurdjieff, they argue, is the origin of all that was great and all that was awful in Wright's world. So they're pinning it on the ethos of Gurdjieff that Ogilvana brought with him, inspired him to take his artwork and his buildings to the next level, but it also created a lot of tension within his personal life. Sure, like kind of a crappy school. Yeah. The apprentices at the fellowship, Ogilvana, controlled both their emotional and sexual lives. For the few women that attended the mostly male fellowship, she chose their partners. For the remaining single men, 
she encouraged them to form homosexual clubs to release their sexual frustrations. This was akin to some of the methods that Gurdjieff employed within his schools. Right, well, the rope in Paris was all women. Specifically, it was an all-woman. And I'm, I'm sure there was strict instructions to not right. outside of the commune, Brandy so Gurdjieff over. could have his, his harem. However, though, Frank Lloyd Wright loves Gurdjieff. And mm-hmm. he even writes in uh, the Capital Times in Madison here, Sunday, August 26, 1934, he writes a glowing discussion of it. There is only one Gurdjieff. His career is as unique as is the man himself. Rarely going out of his way to visit anyone during his brief stay in the United States, he honored us at Taliesin by coming out from Chicago to stay 24 hours with the fellowship. He is a Greek who has roamed throughout Asia and Western Europe in search of the temple rituals of Oriental culture. He has, from this data, by way of the genius that is his, developed new rhythms in the dance and new music so designed as to integrate the human faculties and prepare the man for a more harmonious development than any we can show by ways of our current ideas of education. His knowledge of human nature and all of its foibles seems perfect, and he does not hesitate to use this knowledge for his own ends, although with a conscience that sees to it that they get something worthwhile out of his meeting them. Not caring at all for America or Americans, he has come over here, as he frankly put it, to quote-unquote shear the sheep. He will turn the wool into some kind of good work for humanity. His hypnotic powers have served him well in this connection, but he is more careful now in exercising them. American fruits and foods he finds unfit to eat, likes only our tomato juice and our dollars, (laughs) but eats enormously just the same. The style of our money he approves. But the shearing, I imagine, is not so good. The wool is now so short. Notwithstanding superabundance of personal idiosyncrasy, George Gurdjieff seems to have the stuff in him of which our genuine prophets have been made. And when prejudice against him is cleared away, his vision of truth will be recognized as fundamental to the man men need. Now, did Frank Lloyd Wright write that himself or did... It sounds like Ogilvana. Ogilvana, right. But this is printed in our local newspaper. Yeah, Capital Times. Still when, around today. And Gurdjieff, you know, comes to visit the fellowship at Taliesin. And it's funny that Frank Lloyd Wright mentions hypnosis in there because that was also part of his school in trying to get psychic powers going and spiritual enlightenment and these kind of uh, paranormal experiences to happen for his students. Sometimes he'd use drugs, sometimes he'd use booze, sometimes it'd be long nights of dancing, and then sometimes he would be hypnotizing them as well. He even mentions Mesmer, the animal magnetism, uh, in in some of his own lectures. Yeah. One apprentice wrote of Wright, he is devoid of consideration and has a blind spot regarding other qualities, yet I believe that a year in his studio would be worth any sacrifice. Despite all the toil and the trouble, his acolytes still found value within the teachings at Taliesin. They must like fried eggs. The action of the fellowship and subsequent foundations even caught the eye of the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover and company compiled a dossier on the activities of Wisconsin. His aim was to prevent the GI Bill funding to go towards tuition. Hoover wrote in one memo, According to one informant, the Wright Foundation appeared to be a religious cult that followed the teachings of one Georgie Gurdjieff, whom he describes as a metaphysician of possible Oriental origin. He stated that the foundation held dances to the moon, told the students how to think and what to think, and that if a student did not attend certain meetings which had nothing to do with the study of architecture, the students will be dismissed from school. He also advised that he had heard there were homosexuals attending the school. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Considering what we know now about J. Edgar Hoover, the irony is pretty, pretty thick. Yeah, real rich. (laughs) There was also the matter of one of his apprentices, William Wesley Peters, better known as Wes Peters. He was one of Wright's best young apprentices. While at Taliesin, Wes Peters had taken a shine to Svetlana, Ogilvana's daughter, the two eloped after she turned 18. Eventually, the couple reconciled with Wright and Ogilvana and went on to have two children. So it sounds like they eloped and snuck away. Right. And then they came back. They ended up settling down, having two children together. Svetlana was pregnant with her third child when she was killed, along with their two-year-old son, Daniel, in an auto accident. Oh, man. 
1946, Peters went on to raise the remaining son, Brandock, although he spent most of the time with the Wrights while his father was traveling and building with Wright. After the death of Svetlana, Brandock lived with the Wrights. Wes Peters was definitely the biggest devotee in Frank Lloyd Wright's life. He was the legacy. Sure, we married his stepdaughter. Yeah. Well, another Svetlana caught the eye of Peters, Ogilvana, and the international press in 1967. Svetlana Alueva. She was a defector of the Soviet Union and the daughter of one Joseph Stalin. Now, this was in the height of the Cold War, but it was also over a decade after Stalin's death. Sure. So she was granted asylum as a defector of the Soviet Union. So she was allowed to come to the United States legally. Well, and a lot of people, I mean, Stalin killed a lot of people. So a lot of people looking out for revenge, too. So get the hell out. Yeah. According to the book, The Fellowship, Ogovana soon became convinced that Stalin's daughter coming to America was a cosmic event, a replacement for her dead daughter, Taliesin's own fairy princess. So that's how Ogovana saw her as this is a replacement. Now, the invitations to Taliesin started in November 1969. Ogilvana also contacted her by phone repeatedly, telling her of the Svetlana that she had lost. Soon, Ogilvana was referring on the phone to the new Svetlana as her daughter. All of this made Svetlana cringe, but it also intrigued her. She had grown up without a mother, Joseph Stalin's daughter, I'm sure, was pretty brutal. <laughs> right, her dad is Joseph Stalin. Yeah, yeah. and Ogovana was born in the same year as her own mother. Perhaps she thought a meeting would have emotional meaning to her. So she decided to come to Taliesin. She met Peters and then Svetlana too, and Peters were eventually married. They bore one child, Olga Peters. I wonder where they got that name from. Right, okay, so, so Ogovana's daughter's husband then marries the daughter of Joseph Stalin. Correct. Wow. So you have Joseph Stalin's daughter in Spring Green, Wisconsin, (laughs) at Taliesin, married to Wes Peters, who was the the acolyte or the the main... Frank Lloyd Wright's biggest protege. Protege. Perfect. The marriage only lasted about three years. They divorced in 1973. But like I said, Peters was Wright's most accomplished apprentice. He assisted on Falling Water and Johnson Wax. He also uh, was responsible for the structural design of the Guggenheim. And upon Wright's death in 1959... He became chairman of the Taliesin Associated Architects. In 1985, he became the chairman of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, and then he served that until his death in 1991. He was really Frank Lloyd's biggest acolyte and also his legacy with the foundation. But I would say that dealing with Wright's oversized ego was probably Peter's biggest accomplishment. Jumping back into our timeline, we're in 1937, Wright, he purchased about an 800-acre parcel in the Scottsdale area, North Phoenix, and this was his plan to build Taliesin West. This would be a winter retreat for Wright and company. Now, confession time, Mike. When I was about 21, I lived in North Phoenix. I lived on 28th and Bell. I grew up in Wisconsin, and this was my first time living alone. I was out in the desert to go to school. It was for motorcycle repair, of all things. All right. And I knew the name Frank Lloyd Wright. I knew he had a tie to Wisconsin. And like many other people in Wisconsin, I probably conflated it with House on the Rock or something, right? Right. Like, oh, yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright must have designed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was probably, oh, that's, that's probably about all I knew about them. <laughs> you know, that's a lifetime or half a lifetime ago for me. I really wasn't interested in much of this stuff at that time in my life. It was safe to say, if it wasn't on two legs or two wheels, I just wasn't interested. The cross street that I lived on, 28th and Bell, if you took Bell due east towards Scottsdale, you'd cross Scottsdale Road, and that turns into Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard. Uh I literally lived on Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard right (laughs) off of it, and I never took that trip due east into Frank Lloyd Wright country because if I would have just went out, I would have ended right in the front yard of Taliesin West. For some reason, I never made that venture. I was flat broke at the time. Probably wouldn't have been able to afford, afford the, a tour. the tour admission. I know Taliesin proper 
I still haven't visited. I've driven by it several times. Used to live out that way, but I never have taken the full tour. I didn't know anything about Franklin right till I came to college here in Madison. And then, like, when they were building the Monona Terrace, they yeah. thought, oh, Franklin Wright designed that. Like, that's cool. Like, you know, he went to school here, right? No. Yeah, and <laughs> just, all this stuff just, kind of reveals itself about, to you. I knew about nothing about architecture. Yep. I never made that. You don't know what you don't know. That's just a kind of a personal aside for me. Go back to Wright's timeline. He's building this out in Taliesin West in Scottsdale. He doesn't know it, but we do. It's the, the final two decades of his life. And he comes up with this Usonian or Usonia house design. Now, this was a term that was popularized by Wright in preference to American, the first two letters being U.S. for United States. And it was a more elegant way of saying Merca. Sure. Well, it also it's specific to the United States instead of American, which... Which could, is North, North, there's a North America, there's a South America. He just didn't want to give the Canadians any credit. And that kind of sounds like something Frank Lloyd Wright would Fra do. Frank Lloyd Wright hated Mexicans, <laughs> is really what it comes down to. Which is why he went to Arizona. Yeah. The word Usonia, it was actually kind of genius because American, everything's America, American. But the word Usonia wasn't in wide use. So I'm going to change the name of my company to Usonian Ghostwalks. Usonian Ghostwalks will be a spinoff. Probably one of your competitors will we'll fire that one eventually. up now that they heard this. He could almost claim it like as a rightism. Like he could coin the phrase. The term conformed to his vision of incorporating dwellings in the confines of the landscape. So much like his organic architecture, this was more of a way of building specific houses for that. And then it also described like a new world character of the American landscape as distinct and free of any previous architectural conventions. Well, if you take something like, you know, we're saying like Romanesque revival we talked about, we talked about Gothic architecture, you know, and then he's saying, okay. He didn't want a remix. He wanted his own thing. Right. If you're going to say that my stuff has a name, Call it Usonian. Yep. And and he already had started the Prairie School movement, that look. That was kind of modeled after the arts and crafts, but more refined, cleaner lines. This was a movement that was specifically marketed to middle-income Americans, right designed and built approximately 60 of these homes starting in 1937. The first is still in use. It's right here in Madison, and it's called Jacob's First House because it was built for the Jacobs. It was their first house. And then they ended up building another one with them because they liked it so much, but they wanted, you know, different things. So they have the Jacobs second house. And that's also in Madison here. Wright recognized the face of the American family was changing. There was no longer a need for a servant's quarter. Many clients preferred a large, open, single story. His specific houses, or the Usonian houses, they were characterized by native materials, flat roofs, and large cantilevered overhangs. He was concerned about solar heating, natural cooling, hence the terraces, because they could stay warm during the day. Sure. Cool during the night. He was concerned with natural lighting, windows, radiant floor, heating, and other distinctive features that weren't typical at the time. Almost a, a green movement way ahead of his time. And then he also wanted the front or public side to be discreet, while the rear private sides could be completely open. It was a way of him creating an oasis while still living in suburbia on smaller lots. He went on later to say that he would prefer at least one acre just so you have the privacy to enjoy the entire property. Sure. That was the Usonian, and he built almost 60 of those in his waning years, and many of them still stand today. Probably almost all of them, I would imagine, unless they were destroyed by fire. Right. Because there's no reason that in this day and age why you tear down a right. <laughs> exactly. In his waning years, Wright would build the Johnson Wax Research Tower. It was in addition to the original works, the Price Tower in Oklahoma, and then some really esoteric works in both the Beth Shalom Synagogue and the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Temple in Wauwatosa. Oh, yeah. I used to have, one of my friends used to work at the Greek festival out there, and so I used to help him uh, hand out euros or whatever. That sounds delicious. The Greek Orthodox Temple, just a beautiful uh, building still in Wauwatosa. Frank Lloyd Wright passed away in 1959. He was 91. His lifespan alone is astonishing. His career extended from the end of the Civil War to the advent of the Space Age. That's the gap that he filled from the Civil War to the Korean War. He designed more than 1,000 structures in his 70-year career. More important than his legacy of standing structures was his influence on architecture worldwide. 
Wright really birthed American modern architecture and is considered the greatest American architect of all time, a title he'll likely never be dethroned from. Although he is now modeled as that secular atheist materialist, maybe in small part to the fountainhead, Howard Rourke, it's clear that he was complex in many ways, had many wide-ranging beliefs, some natural, some otherworldly. And otherworldly, as well as tragic things, have been linked to his structures and properties. In 1958, Lake Delton resident Seth Peterson convinced a 90-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright to design a cottage for him. Peterson ended up taking his own life before the cottage was completed. The cottage was acquired and completed by the new owners, but eventually it fell into disrepair. Luckily, somebody came upon it, recognized it, and restored it to its previous charm in the 1980s. Mm. So that was one of his last um, residential dwellings. The cottage is said to be haunted by a couple. When passers-by see them, they look real enough. But when they are approached, they dematerialize. Mm. So you see this old couple, you go up and to say hello, and they're gone. Well, that so- sounds more like the, the ghost of the couple who eventually finished it rather than Seth Peterson. Yep, that would be the thought there, is that was the original couple. And some say the cottage is haunted by none other than Wright himself. And others say it's Peterson finally making himself at home in the cottage that he commissioned. Now, Mike, there is another place that you've researched that has a link to the ghost of Frank Lloyd Wright. If he's not at the Seth Peterson cottage, he might be at the Dallas Theater. Yes, uh, Kalita Humphreys Theater in Dallas. And this is an article from the ABC News Station in Dallas came out a few years ago. Kalita Humphreys Theater was the only professional theater Wright designed, and now he may be haunting it because he didn't like changes made to the property later. Throughout his illustrious career, America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, designed just one professional theater and one only, the Kalita Humphreys Theater in Dallas. And you could say it sucked. You could say that, laughed Chris Ramirez, a Brearley resident acting company member at the Dallas Theater Center. Out of respect, I would never. Nobody really said that, of course. But some people still believed it, and that much has come back to haunt them. Be gracious to those who came before you, because you never know what they can do in the afterlife, said B.J. Cleveland, a director and actor with Uptown Players at the Kalita Humphrey Theater. Like every right design, the Kalita Humphrey Theater is stunning. It just wasn't very functional initially. For instance, moving props from the basement meant pushing them up a ramp when what they really needed was an elevator. However, Wright would never agree to that, and he didn't have to. He saw the project through to completion, but he died in 1959 before the theater opened. And with the architect out of the picture, they said we need to make some modern changes to the building, Cleveland said. They started by putting in the elevator. They did it without Frank Lloyd Wright's consent, Ramirez said. And apparently, according to Cleveland, Frank wasn't very happy about that, even after death. Both Ramirez and Cleveland said Wright had made his frustrations known as a spirit haunting the grounds, like the time he showed up in the middle of a rehearsal. All of a sudden, a huge light explodes and a stool goes flying across the stage like somebody threw it, Cleveland said. That's not the only time Wright has thrown his weight around. Ramirez once tried to open a door leading to the stage, and someone immediately pushed it shut back into him. So I push, 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 and I looked, and there's nobody there. Ramirez pushed the door all the way against the wall. It was impossible for someone to hide behind, but he insists he felt someone pushing on the other side. Cleveland said the strangest encounter he's had was in the bathroom. I'm washing my hands, and all of a sudden, here on the stall, I hear banging. I looked, and there was nobody in the stall. Then all of a sudden, the water turned on. Pretty much anybody who's performed the Kalita Humphreys has seen props move, shadows appear, and lights flicker. To pacify right, the people who work there have created a shrine in his honor. At the exact moment Cleveland started showing our cameras the shrine, the light in the room began to flicker. Hmm. Perhaps another sign that though Frank Lloyd Wright may have created the theater 60 years ago, he's still putting on a show. Beautiful. Don't fuck with Wright structures and you won't have to worry about him <laughs> where's haunting Frank, you. Where's Frank going to show up? Well, I'm surprised he is not at the Monona Terrace since uh, Monona Terrace was built after his death in 1997, I think. Yes. And it does have elevators. Right. And it escalators. Does, it, it, but it, if you look it has at the, to. If you look at the original concepts of the Minona Terrace, you'll see that way that he built it, all kind of accessible from one level with kind of the ramps the way they are now, mm-hmm. but it was a, a shallower incline, and it was more built on the same level as the surface street, and then more of terrace or veranda was right over the lake. But 
reality really dictates the design when it comes to that. And that was never a completed project for him. Right. And if you guys want to see the Monona Terrace, uh, hear a ghost story and then go looking over Lake Monona and see if you can see any lake monsters. You can do that on our King Street Spirits tour. Yeah, uh, that's great. I've, I've been on that tour. Perhaps the most esoteric of works didn't come directly from the father, but the son, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., or better known as Lloyd Wright. Wright became a celebrated architect in his own right, and he may have gone even further into the mysticism than his father. The largest collection of his works was built for the Institute of Mental Physics next to the storied town of Joshua Tree. Oh. The Institute for Mental Physics was established by an Englishman named Edwin Dingle, He was an Eastern-looking guru who arrived in Oakland, California with spiritual development techniques featuring a vegan diet and ESP. Supposedly, he learned these techniques from the Tibetan mystics. In addition to the Institute, Lloyd Wright also designed LA's Swedenborg Memorial Chapel and then was rechristened as the Wayfarer's Chapel. He also played a crucial role, along with his father, in popularizing the Mayan revival-style architecture in that California, the Valley area around LA. And that brings us to our second murder associated with a right property. And that was an especially grisly murder. And I'm going to let Mike tell us a little more about the John Souden house in L.A. We talk about this murder on the L.A. bus tour because we go to the last place that the victim was seen, uh, at least that we know of. And so that's the Black Dahlia murder, which is um, it's one of the biggest mysteries in all of American crime as to what happened to her. Uh, Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia was what the press called her. Her life consisted of many tragedies. Uh, Its brevity was the final tragedy, while her killer's escape from justice was the epilogue. She was a girl from Boston, born in 1924. Her father killed himself when she was only six years old because he lost his business in the Great Depression. She needs lung surgery when she's a teenager because of repeated severe bronchitis and horrible asthma attacks. In 1942, her mother receives a shocking letter that her father had faked his death and is living in California and had established a new life for himself. Elizabeth turns 18, moves out to Vallejo, only she fights with her dad so badly she moves out a couple months later. She gets a job near Vandenberg Air Force Base, meets an officer and moves in with him before moving out again a few months later because he abused her, another tragedy. She gets arrested in Santa Barbara for underage shrinking, escapes to Miami where she meets another Air Force officer. This one proposes to her but then he dies in a plane crash of August 1945, a few days before the end of the war. Second tragedy. She moves back to Southern California in mid-1946 because one of her friends from Florida had transferred to the naval base in Long Beach, and so Elizabeth Short rents a room in Hollywood. January 1947, she's dropped off to the Biltmore Hotel after spending some time with a married man from San Diego who said she was planning on meeting her sister visiting from Boston. He drops her off at the hotel, She's last seen making frantic phone calls from a bank of phones on the backside of the Biltmore. A car came, picks her up, and according to some, either stops by the Crown Grill a few blocks down or the bar at the Cecil Hotel, Mm, another famous downtown L.A. haunted spot. The Night Stalker stayed there. Um, The Hillside Strangler had stayed there. There's a bunch of stuff at the Cecil Hotel, a lot of hauntings there. Both of these are heavily disputed, unlike the Biltmore, because Biltmore uh, employees claim they saw her making that call. But after she gets in the car here, she's not seen again for several days. Eventually, her body is found in a field in the West Adams neighborhood, what is today somebody's front yard. Her body was horrifically mutilated, her face cut in a terrible smile from ear to ear, and she was chopped in half with surgical precision. Of course, this becomes a national true crime sensation, and there's a tremendous amount of investigation, questioning of witnesses and suspects, but nothing ever came of it. Some sources say that her friends had been calling her the Black Dahlia because of her dyed black hair, as well as her penchant for wearing black clothing even before her death. And indeed, the original name for the crime was the Werewolf Murder because of how her body was mutilated, and they later started calling it the Black Dahlia. The police even investigated the students from USC Med School because of the nature of her incision, but nothing ever came of it. Well, till we come to 70 years later... 
and there is a retired Los Angeles police officer named Steve Hodel, and he thinks that his dad, George Hodel, was the one who killed the Black Dahlia. George Hodel graduated from Berkeley pre-med in June 1932, and then he immediately enrolls in medical school at the University of California in San Francisco, and he receives a medical degree in 1936. He becomes the head of the county's like social hygiene bureau, and he makes some money. He's moving in affluent Los Angeles society in the 1940s. And then he buys a house in 1945, the Soden House, which is designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. Lloyd Wright, who also designed that institute for mental, was it mental physics? The Mental Physics Institute. Yeah. And he's hanging out with people like film director John Huston, the director of The African Queen. He starts getting into... Partying, drinking, womanizing. 1949, he's eventually, George Hodel is eventually accused by his daughter of incest, goes to court and everything. He's, he's acquitted. After that, he moves to Hawaii for a bit in the Philippines. But uh, he's basically a polygamist when he's living at this Soden house. He's got his first wife. He's got his lover. And like it's, it's basically a commune in his little polygamy sect. You know, Steve Hodel is convinced that his father was the one who killed the Black Dahlia. And the police actually did investigate him for a little while um, after the daughter accused him of, like, the rape and incest thing. She also hinted that he had murdered Elizabeth Short in the Soden house. Hmm. And so this place that Frank Lloyd Wright's child had designed was supposedly the last place that Elizabeth Short was alive. Cut her up there, drained her body of blood, and then dropped her off in that field. They even made a TV show about it called I Am the Night. And it's basically based on Steve Hodel's research that his father was the Black Dahlia murderer. Other people are not as convinced. And it's been 70-some years, and they still haven't solved the crime. But a lot of attention has been given to this uh, George Hodel theory over the past few years that Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, was murdered in the Soden House in Los Angeles. Yeah, and an interesting kind of thread to pull on there is that Stephen Hodel asserted that his father had an interest in Celtic mythology as well. He long used the Celtic solar cross, the emblem of various business ventures, much like Frank Lloyd Wright did. So that's kind of an interesting tie-in. Oh, a connection there, yeah. Yeah, and Steve Hodel, again, George's son, insists that his father had an interest in Ogham script via artist Brian O'Doherty, who frequently used it in his work. Ogham was an ancient Celtic script, somewhat like Norse runes. Though carved into trees rather than stones, O'Doherty was a surrealist who frequently employed it in his work, which Hodel was a great fan. Could the Black Dahlia murder be yet another Celtic blood ritual? Oh, like uh, Mama Cheney. Yeah, just like the Taliesin tragedy of Mama Cheney. Well, I was going to say, we have, do have a couple of hauntings that Frank Lloyd Wright built home. You would mention the Mayan revival, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, the it, enthusiasm for uh, Mayan art and architecture happening in the 1920s. If you say that they, the Mayan revival house that they did for the Institute for Mental Physics, mm-hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright himself uh, designed a house in 1924 uh, for Charles Ennis, who was a men's department store owner, and he loved Mayan stuff. This Ennis house in Los Feliz, California. It becomes super famous, number one, because it's the house that's in the background in the movie The Original House on Haunted Hill from the 1950s. And then they use it in Blade Runner. It's used in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's also inspired the Myrene palaces in Game of Thrones. The idea is the Myrene palaces that uh, the Khaleesi then, when she takes over the town, that the castle she's in is inspired by this Ennis house in California. And it seems like the house wasn't very good luck for the people that live there. Charles Ennis dies a couple years later, right after it's built. And then for a while, it's the home of Manly P. Hall. The secret teachings of all ages. Right. Who is a spiritual guru in California in the 1930s. And then he's at the Ennis house for a while. And then even the original owner had said the problem with the place was that it leaked. It wasn't in very good shape. And so when they were working on it in the 1940s again, Frank Lloyd Wright comes back to improve some of the things. And then he says to his grandson, who was with him at the time, Eric Lloyd, he says... I hope we can fix the curse Hmm. on the Anna's house. That's interesting. However, 
fast forward another 40 some years and in 1994 it's severely damaged by the Northridge earthquake and so it kind of goes into disrepair for 20 years until the late 2000s it's bought by a billionaire Ron Burkle and they get a whole foundation to try to restore it to its former glory so they're still working to make the Anna's house back to its former glory but it only really is glamorous or whatever from the outside because from the inside they didn't have a lot of good luck with the Ennis house. Then there's this other place called the Powson House, and that's in Phoenix. Uh, I don't know how far away it was when you lived, but this is from architect.com. Rose Pawson commissioned the home, completed in 1940 from Wright, as a winter getaway from her native San Francisco. However, Rose and her sister only lived in the two-story home for a season because it burned to the ground when an ember blew into a curtain in 1942. The remains of the house were left untouched for nearly 30 years, making it a hangout spot for youth and garnering the name Shiprock because the eerie remains of the chimney resembled a ship's mast. It became like like we think of Hotel Hell and Maribel Caves and stuff like that. It's this burnt down, scary place in Phoenix for people to hang out. And it's one of Frank Lloyd Wright's, it's supposed to be one of his special Usonian residential homes built and then it never gets to be appreciated. And now it's just a place where people can craft legends onto. Right, exactly. You know, they go there and they do that. So there's a Powson house. And then also we were talking about the Dana house earlier, Susan Lawrence Mm -hmm. Dana. This is in Springfield, Illinois, where they build it. And this is also from architect.com. Although Susan's life may have seemed complete to an outsider, her personal life was stricken with the deaths of two infant children, her first and second husbands, and a cousin with whom she lived. However, in 1902, she focuses her energies on building that large home uh, for entertaining with the help of Wright. And that's where he takes the old building and creates a building around it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's it's a major feat for him. What happens to her is that she gives Wright a blank check to build it, and then she mostly has a family fortune to take care of it, but her lavish spending ends up being her demise. Unable to maintain her lifestyle in the house, she hosted seances where she sought advice on how to handle her money. Mm. Looking for financial advice beyond the grave. Right. So you think her father's spirit or whatever might have helped her, but instead she holds these seances, seeing how she can make more money, how she can hold on to it. But what happens is uh, her personal belongings had to be sold to cover her debts. She's forced to live in a cabin outside the house. And when it came to the house and the furniture, she wasn't able to sell a lot of it because uh, people considered them too odd and uncomfortable. Charles Thomas, a publisher, purchased the house and its contents in 1944 and uses it for offices for his company. Dana spent her last years hospitalized for insanity and dies in 1946. The state of Illinois buys the house in 1981, restores it to its former glory, and it renames it the Dana Thomas House to honor both of the owners. Interestingly enough, Frank Lloyd Wright is creating that occult space. Didn't work for Dana. Yeah. Unfortunately. Sounds like the fortunes were against her. But you know, I think a guy like him, he designed so many things, and he leaves such an impact on the psyche uh, of our culture that there's always going to be stories and myths associated with the places that he designed. Mm -hmm. Because if you take, you know, even from Science Hall here in Madison, where he just was an assistant on, they'll exaggerate a little bit how much Frank Lloyd worked on it to increase the legend of the place. Absolutely. To now these different places across the country, whether it's a theater where they're just experiencing weird things. Yeah, in in my estimation, every theater is haunted. (laughs) Right. Every playhouse, every uh, opera house. Right. they, They all have their stories of hauntings. And so you talk about like, the reason they picked Frank Lloyd Wright as the, as the ghost is because he designed it. And it was the only theater that he built. Right. And so it's little things like that when you think about his impact on the culture and the influences that he took in weren't just materialist. They all, he had plenty of paranormal influences and thoughts on his work. And now he has his own influence on our culture and ghost stories and legends associated with that. Frank Lloyd Wright, with nearly a century of designing and building, definitely made an impact on the face of America's landscape. But the extent of his psychic impact is just incalculable. I found through my research that Wright was a complicated character. He was a force of nature, literally and figuratively. He was a builder and an architect in his own right, a creator that almost transcended mere mortals, but he was also a destructive force. He destroyed paradigms and buildings and architecture, and, and marriages. And from the testimony of the closest people in his life, his relationships too. 
Just want to give a special shout out to Steven Snyder, also known as Recluse, for sending me down this rabbit hole. He did a great presentation on a podcast called Esoteric America. Mm. And he covers the entire Spring Green area, including House on the Rock, Circle Sanctuary, of course, Taliesin, the tragedies there, and touches into Frank Lloyd Wright's life. And he was nice enough to share his notes with me. And then if you want to check out another presentation, Esoteric America, Episode 8, I was the guest on that and I did Madison. So check that out as an appendix to this. That's our Wisconsin Legends today. Where, Jeff, can we find you on the internet? You can find me at Badgerland Legends on all the socials, and BadgerlandLegends.com is my website. And if you're interested in hearing some of these stories that we're talking about uh, actually in front of some of these buildings, please check us out at AmericanGhostWalks.com. The Wisconsin Legends Podcast is presented by American Ghost Walks, hosted by Mike Huberty and Jeff Finham, recorded at Sunspot Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, edited by Jeff Finham, audio engineer Mike Huberty, music by Sunspot and various artists. Find out more about the show, including show notes, at wisconsinlegendspodcast.com. Follow the guys at American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Wisconsin paranormal experiences and ghost stories and UFO sightings and monster legends and true history and crime stories just as much as Jeff and I do, then you're going to love the 2023 Milwaukee Paracon happening October 13th to 15th in the Brew City. It's three days of paranormal concerts and parties and activities and ghost tours, but the October 14th Saturday conference that features presentations all about Wisconsin Paranormal and some of the best vendors with the most unique products you're going to see all year long, that's going to be absolutely free at the Irish Cultural and Heritage Center in downtown Milwaukee on Saturday, October 14th, going from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we'll be doing a Wisconsin Legends podcast live at the event. We can't wait to see you. We're going to be diving deep into the mysteries of Milwaukee, and we hope you join us. Absolutely free, MilwaukeeParacon.com. So come down to 2023 Milwaukee Paranormal Conference, MilwaukeeParacon.com, and we'll haunt you there.